Yes, our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Titus, uh, the second chapter, and in the first chapter was about uh, the qualifications for elders, and in, in the Pew Bibles it's on page 966, and it's chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offering salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thanks, Ken, very much. Uh, just before we come and have a look at that passage, please pray with me and ask God to help us to understand, uh, and not only that, but to put it into practice in our lives. Now, Father, in our inadequacies, we come before your word. We thank you for the power of your word to bring transformation. Thank you for your presence with us and thank you for your desire for us to grow in godliness, reflecting you in how we live and how we relate to other people, both in the church and in the world. We do pray for your grace this morning, grace to understand your word, grace to know you better and grace to live out your word in how we love one another. We thank you for your presence with us. Amen. Uh, just before I start, in a few weeks' time, there's a seniors' morning tea, which I just want to plug. 
It's on Tuesday the 20, 25th of, uh, of this month. Uh, and if you want to come, it'd be lovely. There's a lady called Jenny Salt. If you listen to some of the Christian radio stations, you'll hear her advertised. Uh, on, uh, she does podcasts where she interviews well-known people. It's called Salt Conversations. So she'll be coming and talking about stories, but sharing her story, some of the stories she talks with people with, but also with uh, talking about the Bible in the midst of that. Um, everyone's welcome to come. Just pretend to be a senior on the day. Uh, I go, so... It's $5, and please let me know, just that's for catering purposes. Uh, one year, when our, one of our sons was young, he played soccer for a team. It was a team called Rathmines up in Newcastle. And the team had no coach. Uh, no one else wanted to do it, so reluctantly I put my hand up. I'd never coached before, but I'd played soccer most of my life. I wanted the team of these guys, probably they're seven years old, to have fun, to have some exercise, to improve and to win some games. I tried some, uh, to impart some basic skills about soccer. Dribbling, trapping the ball, passing, shooting. While doing so, one boy preferred ants to the ball. Two boys decided to sit and talk to each other. And one boy, every time I tried to kick the ball, would fall over. Teaching them involved lots of explaining what to do showing them what to do and letting them practice how to do it. Like many things in life, we need others to teach us, to model to us and to allow us to practice and help us to grow. And this was Titus's role as Paul appointed him to teach, to correct, to be an example and to help Christians in Crete grow in godliness. This is a chapter all about teaching. It comes up the word teach or teaching nine times. Teaching sound doctrine, we find in verse 1 of chapter 2, sound doctrine to counter false teachers and to counter the influence of Greek mythology in the church. See, what we believe will be seen in how we live. And how we live will, be show, will show what we believe. John Calvin said, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. Doctrine is, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. Cretans, it seems, believed that most gods were born in Crete. One of their heroes was Zeus, the mythological king of the gods, who seduced women and would lie without any problem when it was convenient for him. Well, the Cretans took pride in Zeus, in his underhanded ways, 
And so the Cretans were known for lying and self-indulgence and sexual promiscuity. The men of Crete were known for their violence. And wealthy women exchanged marriage and household responsibility for casual sex and worldly appetites. And this ungodly behaviour in Crete had infiltrated the church, which made Christianity unattractive and Jesus to be ridiculed. And so Titus were to teach different groups in the church how to behave. And rather than Christians being dismissed in society, they would have a credible influence on the culture. We know this because three times within this passage, Paul gives this subversive evangelistic purpose. In verse 5, that no one will malign the word of God. In verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And in verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Three purpose statements within the passage. The gospel needed to be demonstrated in public if it was to be spread. If it was to spread. Uh, last week, after a computer group, uh, there was a Bible talk within the group, followed by an opportunity for people to mingle and uh, some directed learning or getting to know each other in a better way. And then lunch was prepared uh, for people, provided to share in. Within the community group, there's this lovely sense of community building and the leaders have the desire for the attractiveness of Jesus to be seen in order that the message of Jesus will be heard. Due to time, I'm going to speak on the first three groups and the last few verses of the chapter. So if there's any slaves here, I apologise, I'm not speaking to you. Well, Paul gives some instruction to older men in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. According to Hippocrates, a man should be called elderly until he's 56 after which he is old. So if you're over 56 and you're a male, I apologise. But I am speaking to you at the moment, to you old men. Older men are to be taught to be self-restrained, act respectfully and be, self, and be self-controlled. The word self-controlled is actually a word meaning to act wisely, hence not being violent or intimidating. Older men are to be valued submitted citizens in the community and in the church. They are to be citizens of God's kingdom, people who are grounded in the faith, in love and endurance. As they steadfastly wait for Christ's return, Many years ago, I was uh, at Penner Hills Baptist Church, and there was a man there called Ellis Simpson. He was in his 90s. He walked with a limp because of being injured in the war. 
He was a beautiful man. He was well regarded by the neighbours and by all in the church. In spite of his age, in spite of his uh, limitations, he was always winsome. He was a great encourager. He would pray for people and he would let people know that he's praying for them, always remembering their children's names individually. He grew up in days when telegrams were delivered to people's doors. And Ellis used to refer to himself, I'm one of God's messenger boys, as he brought God's news to people. He loved sharing the gospel with people. Ellis was like a, an oak tree. Oak trees are associated with honour and wisdom and strength. They don't have the deepest roots of all trees, but their taproot may be 20 to 30 metres long. Ellis's life and words revealed his character and his concern for God's honour and for other people to hear that. If you're an older man, if you're over 56, This is the type of person that God calls you to be. If you're under 56, this is the type of person that God calls you to be if you're a male, although we'll get to that in a minute. What do your words and behaviour say about where your roots are? What do your words and behaviour, your reactions, your desires say about where your roots are? What would your neighbours and the people you connect with in church say about your character in regards to these verses? The temptation as men grow older is often to want to be comfortable and untroubled. We may place our roots in our work, in the shed, in TV or in grandchildren, rather than in Christ. The one who produces faith, love and endurance within us. Interesting, he doesn't use the words faith, love and hope, but endurance carries that same sense, enduring while we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Older women, in verses 3 to 4. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women. Older women, in the same way, are also to be godly examples in their lives and speech. The word reverent carries the sense of allowing God's presence to permeate their life. It's not just something in a box within their life, but it is all of their life. Sue, Sue now in her 90s, has four daughters who I grew up with. In her 50s, her husband, who was heavily involved in the church, left her for somebody else. It was a devastating betrayal and an awful shock for her 
and for all the church. And yet over time, Sue showed her identity was not in being married, but in how God saw her. Her personality is one that is reserved. Yet her life continues to be marked by gentleness and patience and grace and gratitude. For her love for her family and the trust in God's goodness. I feel emotional. Because Sue and my mother were good friends. And they shared about the depth of life. Paul says older women are not to slander or slur others, nor are they to drink too much. Both of which, what we say with our tongue and drink, are possible when free time breeds idleness. This happened when Cretan women threw off restraints to do whatever they pleased. Rather, instead of that, there is opportunity for older women to use their time to teach younger women what is good. Interesting, Titus is to teach the older men, the older women, the younger men and slaves, but it is the older women who are to teach the younger women. I imagine, I mean, I imagine it would be awkward for an older woman to initiate contact with someone younger with a view to being, wanting to invest in their lives. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a woman, but I imagine that would be because we're not a communal culture, we're an individual culture, and it would feel awkward. What right do I have to go and ask you if you would like to meet? Yet it seems to me, again, I'm not a woman, and it seems to me as, as older women live God-honouring lives, like Sue, there will be an attractiveness that others may notice how they act and react when hard times come. What their words are like when they meet. Younger women may want someone with godly wisdom to pray and support them as they juggle life. I saw this work out in the Toronto church on a few occasions as older women live godly lives and younger women longed for uh, figures to help them and there was a, an opportunity to disciple and share life together. I imagine this happens to some extent in playtime as older Christian women often who are grandmother figures, although their own grandchildren aren't there, come in to help and be a listening ear and bring encouragement and sensitive instruction. Younger women. Older women are to teach what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, 
homemakers kind and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. It's interesting there's no mention of single women here as marriages were arranged, often from times when children were infants. But there is a sense that all women are to be self-controlled, pure and kind. As we read these verses in our culture today, again, I'm not a woman, but I imagine lots of women would feel they were repressive and demeaning. Unlike today, people in the first century did not marry for love. Rather, marriage for a woman was about respect and obedience. So love for husband and children had to be developed. And yet, if Christian women living in male-dominated first century, as part of the culture already had to submit to their husbands, why does Paul say for them to be submissive to their husbands? The tense of the verb that Paul uses shows that the woman had a choice. She is to place herself in submission. So Paul was empowering women to be decision makers, to make a choice themselves when they were forbidden to make decisions in society. As Jesus willingly submitted to the Father, so biblical submission is something husbands and wives offer each other as expression to their own relationship with Christ. I took my wedding ring off today just to make sure it was still there. When we got married, which was a while ago now, we had engraved on both our rings, EPH 521, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ideally, such submission of a, of a godly wife would be in response to a godly Christian husband's submission to Christ and showing sacrificial love for his wife. I always remember hearing some time ago about the story of... Uh, I think she was a radio announcer in America, popular. Her name was Liz Curtis Higgs. She'd been burned and broken by so many men that she became a militant feminist. A girlfriend of hers kept inviting her to church. And eventually, after being invited for so long, to keep her quiet, she said, OK, I'll go, but I'll only go one time. One time only. Well, the time she went, the pastor was preaching on Ephesians chapter 5, which says, wives, submit to your husbands. Not exactly a good passage for a militant feminist to hear. She was irate. She said later, she decided she would actually keep listening to gain more and more ammunition to use against her friend. And she actually heard what the passage went on to say. And husbands, you sacrifice yourself 
You give yourself for your wives just as Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the church and died for her. And she says, when she heard that, she leaned across to her friend and cynically said, I gladly give myself to any man if I, knew, if I knew that he would die for me. And her friend said, Liz, there is a man who loves you so much, so much enough to die for you, and his name is Jesus. That's how much he loves you. In Cretan society, family values were under threat, as is the case today. And Paul gave this instruction and said, so that God's message will not be slandered. How we live, both as men and women, is to reflect God's values, not society's. And Paul, skipping over slaves and some about young men, Paul goes on and gives the reason, the rationale for what he's talking about. In verses 11 to 14, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These are powerful, encouraging verses. Sometimes I get discouraged, discouraged about my own life. I keep doing things I know are wrong, and yet I keep doing them. And I say to myself, I have to try harder. Uh, one of the things is, uh, of a morning, I'll, I like to get up early, I like to go for a walk, I like to be able to have time to read the Bible, uh, have time to have breakfast, and then be at a church, at work. It's so easy for other things to keep taking priority, like walking and breakfast and reading the Bible. Well, that's okay, but sometimes prayer gets squeezed out. And I think to myself, I need to try harder. I need to do more. I do pray at other times as well, but in the mornings is, I guess, a key time for me. If I did it at night time, I'd be asleep while I'm praying. And I think I have to try hard, I have to try more. And yet I come to these verses and I'm so encouraged because we find that God's grace is at work. It's not our efforts that will transform us. It doesn't mean that I don't have to try or we don't have to try, but our effort is based in, on trusting in what God has already done. 
God's grace teaches us to say both no and yes. No to sin and yes to obedience God's way. I sometimes get some books from a a bookshop called Reformers Bookshop um, and they often send out little uh, bookmarks with sayings from people of centuries ago. And one of the ones I noticed the other day was a guy from the 17th century, Richard Sibbs or Stibbs. What the heart desireth best the mind studieth most. What the heart desires best, the mind studies most. And it was both an encouragement and a challenge to me. What does my heart desire most? Because that's where my focus will actually be. What does your heart desirous most because that's what you will give most attention to most time to most money to God's grace teaches us to say both no to sin and yes to obedience God's grace appeared in the past with the coming of Jesus The word appeared, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The word means something coming to view that was previously concealed, couldn't be seen. The sun at night time can't be seen until it appears in the morning, and yet it's always there. God's grace has always existed, for God is gracious but it has appeared most clearly, visibly in Jesus. It appeared in the past. Grace appears to us in the present as it teaches us in the present to renounce our old life and to live God's way, turning from ungodly ways to growing in godliness, turning from self-centeredness to self-control, turning from unconcern for others to a concern for what is right and justice. And grace is also in the future. For Jesus will appear again while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing. And it's grace that enables us to wait. In the same way that the sun continues to shine at night, though we can't see it, so Jesus will appear, though we can't see him at present. It's God's grace that helps us living for that. It is God's grace that empowers you, men and women, to live differently as they obey God's words. And all this teaching will add credibility to the gospel as we live within the culture and society. A guy from a few generations ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, 
You and I are to be such that as we walk up and down the streets of life, people will be struck and attracted. You've seen them turn and look at a well-dressed person. They should be struck by us and look at us and think, what is this person? I've never seen anybody quite like this before. This is the kind of people that we can be and the kind of people we must be. And when we become such people... Believe me, the revival we are longing for will start and the people outside in their misery and wretchedness will come in and will not want to know about it. Paul wanted Titus to teach in such a way that the gospel as a message was actually lived out in people's lives. He gave Jesus to redeem us from sin and to purify. He is the one who transforms people inwardly so that we can say no and yes. And he's the one who empowers us to live differently. And he's the one who enables us to endure and wait for the Lord Jesus to return. And to do that in a context of a watching neighbourhood the people who live beside you or in front of you or behind you, the people who you work with or take your grandchildren to preschool with, to live in such a way that they say, I haven't seen the way this person lives. Let me pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is a gospel all about grace. What you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. We thank you what you've done in the Lord Jesus is sufficient and complete. We thank you that you've made us new inwardly, but you are changing our behaviour. We pray that you'll help us to take your gospel seriously, to live it out in our lives. Father, we do confess that we can be so good with our words, so good with our knowledge. We pray that you help us to live out differently in ways that honour you and actually provide a credible example of who you are in the way that we live. We thank you that you're concerned for us, but you are concerned for those beside us, for a world that is decaying and passing away. Please help us to grow in concern for those people also as we keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus. Amen.